What are cryptocurrencies? Hey, hey, hey. What are NFTs? A non-fungible token. Time to buy Bitcoin. Bitcoin just seems like a scam. What's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, what's up? Bitcoin! Hello everyone, welcome back to On The Ledger. This is your host Mul Said, and I'm back fully recharged after a much needed summer break. I hope you all managed to spend some time away from the intensity of Cryptoland with your loved ones and are energized and ready for what's to come because Q4 is going to be pretty eventful to say the least. For the Ethereum community, a big change is in the air. And it's not just a change of seasons, it's the words on everyone's lips the merge. After years of development, the Ethereum network is finally ready for its biggest upgrade to date. One that'll mark the beginning of the switch to the long-awaited Ethereum 2.0, which aims to improve Ethereum's scalability and sustainability, all while protecting its security and decentralization. If all goes according to plan, this upgrade will shift away from the energy-intensive consensus mechanism known as proof-of-work and replace it with proof-of-stake, a model which is considered to be much more energy-efficient but skeptics worry it might be less secure. So what does this mean for you? How will it impact your ledger experience? What are the potential risks associated with this switch? And what's next for Ethereum? Big questions that demand big answers. But worry not, because today, we've got an incredible amount of brain power with us on the show that'll help us untangle this subject and navigate the merge with serenity. First up, I'm honored to host Nicolas Baca, Ledger's co-founder and VP of Innovation for the first time on the Ledger. We'll be joined by two amazing contributors to the Ethereum ecosystem, Ledger CTO Charles Guimet and Starknet's ecosystem lead, Abdelhamid Bakta. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. How are you feeling today? Good, good. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for hosting. Yeah, very good. Good. Thank you for having us. It's great to have you guys. Um, exciting times ahead with the merge, and I'm really eager to jump into this topic with you. So let's kind of start by setting the table here. Um, this question has probably been covered extensively, but I'd like you to remind those uninitiated, why is Ethereum evolving? And most importantly, what is the merge? Um, maybe I can start with uh, with this one. Uh, from my perspective, there are two main motivations for uh, switching from proof of work to uh, proof of stake. The first one is, as you said, obviously to reduce the power consumption of uh, the, the consensus mechanism. Uh, proof of work is basically um, a proof of power consumption again, uh, and the security relies on game theory, where an attacker would have to pay a lot of money uh, to consume a lot of energy uh, for breaking the security of the consensus. Uh, and the incentives are such that you would earn less money uh, doing that than you spend uh, to, to attack the consensus mechanism. Uh, proof of stake is very different and consumes drastically less power, uh, several orders of magnitude. So this is this is the first reason for the first motivation for going to uh, proof of stake. And the second motivation is uh, scalability. The proof of stake design of Ethereum enables the activation of blockchain sharding. And the overall of uh, sharding design is to split uh, the Ethereum blockchain into several independent shards, independent blockchain, let's say, and it allows to multiply uh, the throughput of the chain by uh, the number of, of, uh, of shards. Uh, this is uh, roughly, roughly the idea. Um, and from my perspective, I, I will uh, trigger directly a, a debate. I think this design is a little, a little bit risky. 
and mostly because it does not, it does not really solve the scalability uh, problem that we have in Ethereum. The problem of scalability we have is not to multiply the throughput by uh, by eight, sixteen, or sixty-four. It's to multiply it by ten thousand. This is what we what that we what we are talking about. And to solve it, I don't think um, the the sharding uh, design allows to uh, to do this uh, uh, this scalability. But from my perspective, I strongly believe that uh, zk rollup are the best solution uh, to to do that. I'm pretty sure Nicolas and Abdel will agree with that. But yeah, I just wanted to uh, to to give my intro uh, on this. So two main motivation for switching from proof of work to proof of stake. First one is uh, power consumption, and second one is scalability. But I would say it's not uh, that good idea. Um, I agree. Those are, are the two main reasons we uh, usually here in the Ethereum community. I would like to emphasize the fact that I'm not at all uh, um, fan of the uh, reducing the power consumption of the consensus. Uh, uh, to be clear, uh, the, the energy consumption of, uh, on proof of work is, uh, is a feature, not a bug. And I don't think it, it hurts the planet at all, on the contrary. Uh, so just saying that personally, it's only my opinion. Uh, I don't think that... Uh, uh, reducing significantly the the, the, the power consumption uh, uh, by switching to the proof of stake is uh, is uh, an object a goal uh, at all. Uh, as uh, Shard said, the main reason is to enable the next steps of the roadmap of uh, Ethereum 2.0, uh, including the sharding, but not only the sharding, other other big important steps. So I see that as a transitory. Uh, uh, upgrade that is uh, the the primitive to enable and to build uh, all the the next steps of, of the roadmaps that are currently being built uh, in parallel. So it's mostly uh, to enable the, the the following upgrades. And on the scalability issue, uh, I I agree that to me the the, the most uh, potential solution to the scaling, if you want mass adoption, is through zk rollups because the main problem is the monolithic approach of uh, Ethereum, and we can see that uh, the only solution to that is uh, to bring some modularity. That means that we cannot uh, do every basic function of the blockchain on a single layer, and we need to 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 split out some functions and specifically uh, the execution layer. And this is what zk rollups are doing, but we can talk more about that later. But I totally agree with Charles on that one. Yeah, and I think that from a from a security and from a well from a blockchain history point of view, it's quite interesting as well because it's the first time that we perform a consensus change uh, for a blockchain on which we have that much economic value locked inside. Uh, so we don't we shouldn't forget that crypto is still uh, in its infancy. I mean, compared to other systems, and seeing that uh, played uh, life is super interesting in my opinion. And well, and as someone who is also a big fan of Bitcoin, uh, I would say that the main goal of proof of work, in my opinion, is to make the path uh, harder to change. So in the end, it's it's easier if you have a single path. So I definitely support the motivation of the second blockchain, uh, the second biggest blockchain moving to proof of stake, because uh, in my opinion, there should be only one chain supported by, by proof of work. If you want to use uh, all the energy consumption for for one good reason. Well, uh, it's best to it's best to focus on one single goal. I think that well, having multiple chains working on proof of work in the end is kind of a waste of energy, and 
in a protocol where you absolutely don't want to waste it, it's it's just better to keep focused. So that would be my that would be my small, uh, almost no controversial contribution to the to why I think it's a good idea to switch to proof of stake. And to this point, I will add the fact that to me it's also a way to have a better censorship resistance overall. If we consider the two ecosystems, Bitcoin and Ethereum, the fact that they will adopt two very different consensus mechanisms mm. that have very different attack vectors is good overall because uh, a, a nation state, if they want to stop both uh, ecosystems, they will have to to use different vectors of attacks to, to stop both. And they are very different. On one side, you, you, you need to do some physical attacks on uh, buildings or uh, hardware vendors, etc. And on the other hand, other sides, uh, you will ha- you will have to 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 catch uh, uh, validators, etc. Individuals. Uh, this is very different. So I think overall it's good to have this uh, diversity for the two biggest. Uh, wow! So so many things to to untangle here that was settled the, the first question. But let me try to bring this down to the end user um, level uh, of perspective. Uh, as an end user, we've all been hearing about you know Ethereum 2.0 for the past you know what four years now. Um, and we've heard about how this will solve uh, issues related to gas fees, will all solve issues related to overall scalability through output, like everyone mentioned. Um, and now you guys are telling me that um, this is basically something that uh, will not be effective at doing so, and that the scalability issue will not be solved by the merge itself as an event. But I sense that you guys are talking about ETH 2.0 even as a as a as a longer term project and not necessarily as the merge event um, specifically, so could you guys you know maybe uh, provide us with a little bit more detail on why is this the case and then how um, could we actually um, you know start uh, realizing these promises related to you know, reduction of gas fees and uh, higher higher scalability? Yeah, the, the reduction of, of gas fees and scalability are like very related because. Uh, you have limited space on the blockchain, and there is uh, an auction mechanism like to uh, to 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 capture this space for 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 your transaction. So it's it's very related, and Abdel knows this very well because he, he was one of the uh, creator of uh, fifteen fifty nine uh, EIP fifteen fifty nine, and this this scalability is uh, is uh, is very big because the the scalability issue is very big. Because today uh, on on ETH, on Bitcoin blockchain you have like uh, seven uh, seven transactions per, per second on Ethereum it's slightly better around fifteen transactions per second but what what we need to achieve is like uh, one hundred thousand transactions per second with mass adoption this is what we need and um, and we we can see this already. Uh, as soon as you have like a drop uh, or uh, a new application on Ethereum blockchain, a lot of users are uh, going on this application, and the fees are uh, skyrocketing. And this is this is not what we uh, this is not what we want because it makes the blockchain quite unusual and uh, impossible to use at the end. Um, so th- this issue must be tackled, uh, and as I was uh, mentioning before, uh, one of the way to uh, improve scalability is the sharding uh, mechanism, which is uh, enabled by uh, by the merge. And as you said, this is the first step of a long roadmap. 
Um, but again, like the sharding will improve uh, the scalability, will improve the throughput of Ethereum blockchain by a factor of 8, 16, 64 maybe. If you improve it to too much, uh, you, you really uh, sl uh, scale down your, uh, your security. So, so, so this, is a, this is always a trade-off. Uh, but you don't achieve uh, uh, 100,000x uh, in terms of, of uh, scalability. And for this, I, I, as I was mentioning, for now, the most promising uh, um, uh, solution for that is, uh, is Wallop, and especially ZK Wallop. Yeah, we'll get we'll get into that. But just just to untangle the second element, because we've spoken of scalability, but there was another very interesting thing that you mentioned, uh, which is related to sustainability. So you know, most of the headlines today are telling us that you know, uh, obviously with proof of stake, uh, Ethereum's uh, carbon footprint would be reduced by ninety nine percent, and that you know, obviously, even if in the overall macro uh, environmental discussion doesn't have a lot of weight. For uh, certain um, projects, corporations, brands, creators, this matters a lot because at the end of the day, they want to be building on a blockchain that is aligned with regards to their value. So what, what's your perspective on the impact of this change and its importance for the future of the Ethereum ecosystem? Yeah, I, I really think that uh, it can trigger a shift in the paradigm uh, for big companies, uh, institutions, etc. Because as you said, uh, a lot of them are sensitive to, to those uh, stuff, even uh, not for uh, ideological perspective, but sometimes for from regulation perspective. Uh, so I, I totally agree that the shift to proof of stake and the uh, strong reduction of the carbon footprint of, of Ethereum can, can possibly bring uh, uh, massively some big corporation and institutions that, that will be interesting to follow uh, I expect uh, most many of them to, to come and this, this will increase uh, adoption and usage of the network so I think overall uh, that's good uh, so I agree this uh, this shift can happen with uh, the change yeah but in the end it's more discussion about narratives than a discussion about technical values i mean as we as we mentioned because well we can we can discuss i mean the energy consumption of proof of work and we can see i mean where this energy is coming from which is always the important question i mean rather than how much energy are you using because if you if you don't use energy you're basically dead so if you if you are doing something you are going to use energy but i agree that well regarding especially uh well the labels, I mean, that companies are expecting to have, for example, if you want to run an ESG fund, uh, if you want to run some, some specific business, uh, it's always better to have, it's always better to have the green label. And today we don't have many blockchain, I mean, who have it and the one who have it have been played uh, I've been playing very heavily on it. I mean, for typically Tezos has been pushing this narrative for, for a very long time. And I would say that it's good to have some competition uh, regarding this narrative and especially with, uh, with a blockchain which has uh, a, lot of, a lot of value locked on it. I mean, it's, it's great to have the second blockchain I mean, competing, on those, um, competing on those grounds, in, in my opinion. Absolutely. And I actually have a third question related to sharding and ZK rollups, but I'll keep it till the end because I think it, it might be a little bit too early in the flow to go deep into what charting is and how it, um, and how ZK rollup differs from charting. Um, so now I think we've covered the why Ethereum is evolving. Um, maybe we should like maybe explore the then what. What happens then? Um, I know that Nico, um, when you were asked previously how the merge would affect Ethereum users, um, you said that uh, there would be no changes uh, in terms of the impact it would have on on Ethereum users. Uh, what do you mean by that? 
Yeah, because, well, I meant that when you are a user of the system, you are still going to send your transactions. I mean, the same way you are not going to see any fee reduction, as we mentioned, because uh, the merge is only affecting block producer. It's only affecting, well, the, it's only affecting the computers which are operating the network in the end of the nodes. And users who are just sending transactions are not going to see any difference. Um, so as you mentioned, uh, today, I mean, the narrative of Ethereum 2 changed a bit over time because uh, probably the Ethereum Foundation was a bit too... Uh, the, the initial planning was probably a bit too simplistic and saying that, well, we are going to see all the, all the changes at the same time. But when we moved into a roadmap, which was a bit more pragmatic, uh, we realized that the merge is just an event that will affect um, people who are operating the network and not people who are using the network. So that will be the, that will be the, the biggest difference. And of course, uh, scammers are going to play on this and scammers have already started to play on that. So uh, the very important part to mention, to, to remember for users is that Ethereum 2 doesn't exist. Uh, you don't have Ethereum 2 tokens. Uh, you still have Ethereum. I mean, Ethereum is evolving uh, in the in the background. So since Ethereum is evolving, uh, your Ethereum, I mean, and all your tokens are going to stay the same, and you don't have to perform anything to well, you don't have to perform anything to use um, the new consensus because it's uh, it's just a part of the network. So if you see a website which is prompting you to act on something, and of course, uh, prompting uh, an immediate action is a good way for scammers. I mean, to have people to 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 have people to act. So I think we are going to see more and more of those scams as we move towards uh, the budget event. Uh, just have to remember that you have absolutely nothing to do. So everybody telling you, okay, you are going to, to have to switch your tokens, you are going to have to uh, go to this website to uh, enable Ethereum 2, it's a scam, it, just ignore it. Uh, report it to us. I mean, if it's coming through, uh, if it's specifically targeting Ledger, and our team can do its best to try to to try to disable the website. But other than that, uh, there there is no action to take for users. So that is for that is now for for I would say uh, users that don't think that they would be able to use, for example. So maybe we are going to talk about forks a bit later. So I will I will save this for uh, when we talk about that. But if you consider, if you are just interested in the well-being of the Ethereum ecosystem, and I would say the token that you have on Ethereum, you have absolutely nothing to do with it. Of course, that goes for NFTs as well. So that goes for everything hosted on the Ethereum network. You just don't have to move. Um, if you are using, if you are using uh, Ledger, um, the service will be suspended on our side. So just, I mean, on the, just, I mean, regarding our infrastructure for. Uh, a few moments, probably not more than a few minutes, and then we are back to we are back to normal, and nothing will have changed at all in the way you are using the network. Yeah, that, that, that's a great point because obviously scammers will, as you said, uh, try and leverage on that. Maybe ask people for their seed phrase or, or things like that. So um, please don't give away the seed phrase. Don't sign any weird malicious transactions without knowing exactly what you're signing. And uh, yeah, just underlining what you just said, Nico. But another thing that's very important that you said is that this merge and this event will impact primarily the people who operate the network. Um, which means that it will impact the economics uh, of the network itself. So how do you guys think uh, the merge will affect uh, Ethereum's economics and what are the biggest changes there uh, that, that, that will have you know, substantial impact on the future of the network? 
Uh, on the economics uh, side of things, uh, one uh, important thing to, to mention is the strong reduction of emission of heat uh, that will happen uh, through the merge as well. Uh, so that means that there will be way less uh, new heat uh, issued over time. And if we consider the impact of EIP 1559, it's very likely that most of, if not all, blocks will be uh, deflationary. That means that uh, supply of heat can, can decrease uh, over time. So that, that will be one of the first uh, direct impacts. Um, other than that, there will be a, a, a period where it, it won't be possible for uh, uh, validators to, 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 to withdraw their rewards. Um, this is often, uh, often a misconception that we can see sometimes that uh, uh, because on one hand we, we are removing the selling pressure from miners, uh, but on the other hand, we don't add uh, any uh, counterpart uh, selling pressure from validators that won't be able to withdraw their rewards. Uh, they will be able to only to get uh, the transaction fees, but uh, not uh, the block rewards. So this is also a direct impact regarding uh, the economics. Okay. And maybe just maybe taking one or two steps back, um, I think we haven't really underlined this at the beginning of the episode, but the, the fact that proof of stake uh, is switching from energy consumption to basically capital consumption to some extent is a huge economical change. Uh, Charles, could you maybe dive a little bit more into it uh, and explain like basically, because I know you have a very specific point of view regarding that, that you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, which is obviously the security component but could you maybe like switch from the economical impact and touch a little bit on the security component as well yes and also there was a, there was something important i'd like to mention uh, about uh, censorship resistance i i um I definitely liked uh, what Abdel said about uh, having different mechanism for different blockchain uh, uh, enables a better, uh, a better uh, censorship resistance. I agree with that. Uh, nonetheless, I think like specifically uh, with Ethereum design of proof of stake, uh, there, there are some parameters who, which are not like um, uh, very well designed from my perspective uh, to uh, to uh, ensure uh, uh, censorship resistance. So I'd like to highlight that this is very uh, personal opinion, not investment advice as usual. Uh, and I, I have several concerns about this, this uh, transition. So first of all, uh, we are going in the unknown. Of course, it's an historical moment. It's, it has been send, said several times, so very excited about that. It, this never happened uh, in the past. Um, and about yeah, this decentralization and censorship resistance, I think there are three main parameters in the Ethereum design which are not optimal. The first one is um, difficulty of running a node. Like uh, if you want to achieve decentralization, running a node should be as easy as possible. And frankly, this is not the case. Like running an Ethereum node is not easy, and uh, and we need to improve this in order to improve uh, censorship resistance. So yeah, the second one is the locking period. Uh, as Abdel said, uh, for now, you as a validator, uh, as a staker, you cannot uh, withdraw your your reward. And for now, it's an unknown period of time. We don't know when it will be possible to withdraw. So I think this is, this is a second weakness. And the third one is uh, this uh, 32 ETH uh, thing. Uh, when, you, when you want to, to stake Ethereum at the protocol level, you need to stake at least 32 ETH. And it's a lot. Uh, there's three parameters incentivize 
some decentralization of ETH staking, and we, we can see it all today. Uh, users don't want to have the burden of running their own nodes because it's not easy. They don't necessarily uh, have 32 ETH to stake. And finally, they want to be liquid. Everyone wants to be liquid. That's why we have Lido, we have Coinbase, and we have a few others uh, with with, with, which have like the vast majority of the staked Ethereum. And for this centralization is bad for censorship resistance. I don't, to, I don't want to create fat, but for instance, if tomorrow we have like a big government, US government, for instance, and they want to forbid one type of transaction or something, and they want to implement a censorship, they only have to, to reach those few actors and uh, request them to, to uh, implement this censorship. And this is mostly possible because of the three not well-designed uh, parameters. Uh, th this is my perspective, and I think uh, the design could have been better uh, in, in this area. I, I, I don't think it will happen. I, I'm, I don't want to create FUD, but yeah, these this, this, are ma mainly my concern. Uh, so on the second point, totally agree. It adds uh, some unknown. The fact that you don't know when people will be able to uh, withdraw their rewards. Uh, one interesting thing is that the two points, the first and the third one, are contradictory in the sense that you um, you said that it, it's not easy to run nodes and the importance of running those. Hundred percent agree. This is very important, and this is the only way to be sovereign and to have its full mm -hmm. sovereignty. Uh, we should emphasize that a lot, etc. First of all, uh, I will explain later why those two are contradictory or um, antagonists. Uh, first of all, we can see an increase uh, on the number of full nodes uh, approaching the merge. Um, and I think one of the reasons, uh, and this is something we don't talk uh, a lot about, I, in my opinion, is the fact that there is a, a strong will of the community to uh, encourage the fact uh, that people run their nodes and don't rely on Infora or other providers. And w w what is, is done concretely is that, you know, uh, when you, you when you run uh, an Ethereum validators, it's actually two pieces of software, one consensus layer software and one execution layer software. And uh, some uh, sometimes people just run their consensus layer software and they target Infora as the execution layer uh, Engine and this is bad. And one way to mitigate that is to add an authentication mechanism between the, the, the two because they have to communicate in the end. And the idea is to have a, an authentication mechanism to uh, prevent uh, providers such as E4, etc., to be used by the consensus layer. This is a very good thing, and to me, we should not rely on providers like Infor, etc. First thing. Why those two are contradictory or antagonists? Um, I agree this is a strong barrier to entry uh, for people to have 32 it. But the problem is that this number is not uh, is there on purpose. Uh, there is a trade-off because if the, this number is too low, that means that there will be much more validators in the validator set. And the consequence of that, uh, it will add some pressure on the bandwidth and also on the... Uh, on the finality time uh, and on the the requirements to run a node. 
So you see, you, uh, I think you, you see the, the paradox there. Uh, if yep. the barrier is, is too low, we'll have more validators, but the chain will be less performant and it will add more requirements. So it can tend to have less full nodes. I, I, I don't, I cannot say that this number is optimal. And obviously there is a possibility of changing it in the, uh, depending on its price, etc. But uh, I just wanted to highlight that, that it can hurt if this number is too low. I just wanted to clarify something because some of the people listening to us might not know exactly the difference between a validator and a node. Um, so we we might want to clarify that. And please go ahead, Nico, clarify that and go ahead with your answer. Oh yeah, no, that was <laughs> I was I was just saying yeah. When you want to, I think one it's a good demonstration. And if you if we want to force market parameters through technical uh, technical uh, details or technical restrictions, uh, we see that the market finds a way. I mean around them because uh, limiting to thirty two, I mean led to led to liquidity, led to different liquidity provider. I mean that that led to more centralization. So in the end, it's super difficult to predict what will happen, and you need to see the system live. Uh, to understand how the different market actors will uh, will interact together, so that's definitely that's definitely another lesson we can take from the uh, another lesson we can take from the merge. I mean, even this early, uh, I don't think people expected that that those liquidity uh, liquid staking provider will appear. I mean, so fast. And of course, the existing centralization of exchanges uh, was a very good, uh, a very good breeding ground. I mean, for for, the, for those kind of services, because uh, today, if we have the market, I mean, which is, which is split between four to five uh, major exchanges, uh, we know that well. If you start to put proof of stake in the mix, it's definitely sure that they want to be they want to be good actors because they already have. Uh, a lot of the liquidity, so you, so you, you, well, you need to, you need to run it live. I mean, to understand where the system is going, and that's why uh, the next, the next week are going to be pretty exciting. Also, as an, well, just as observers, if you, maybe for investors as well, but yeah, just as a, as an observer, it's going to be, it's going to be pretty interesting. And um, the distinction between nodes and validator, because we haven't answered about that, basically. Uh, Validators are uh, playing um, the role of uh, producing blocks. Actually, they are making the chain moving, etc., creating blocks and include the transaction in blocks, and they participate in the consensus. Nodes, uh, especially full nodes, they actually act as guardians. They ensure that validators are playing their role correctly and they are not cheating. This is why it's extremely important for the decentralization and the sovereignty of users. This is the only way, actually, to be sure that validators Validators are not cheating. So this is exactly. a distinction between the two. Uh, yeah, and, and validators basically replace miners. That's the whole the whole idea. Validators are putting in some stake, which is like it's called proof of stake. They're putting in some money in order to say, hey, I'm gonna be honest. I'm not gonna do some shady things with the blockchain. If I do, you can slash me, basically take away some of my liquidity. Whereas miners and yeah, um, go go ahead, Charles. And, and the more stake you have, and the most likely it is uh, for you to be selected to uh, participate to the consensus. Exactly. So you're able to actually access higher uh, levels of transactions and gain more fees out of them. Um, the problem that we're actually discussing here is the fact that there's obviously a minimum to become a validator. Um, so then it creates uh, some sort of a barrier for entry for smaller validators, which means that the liquidity is then concentrated within the hands of a, a, a limited number of actors. And the solution to this was that some of these limited number of actors started saying, 
to uh, the overall community, hey, give me your give me your liquidity. I'll provide you with a token that is some sort of a coupon that says that you've given me your ETH that you can then spend off the market, uh, which means that the people that have less than 32 ETH can still gain benefits out of this whole uh, consensus mechanism, which is the, the, the proof of stake, without necessarily having to um, um, put uh, 32 ETH on the table. But the result of that is more centralization. Um, so I'm just trying to recap all of that, which means that at, at the end of the day, um, the biggest shift from you know proof of work to proof of stake, um, um, and, and the idea behind it was to make sure that the consensus mechanism itself becomes more, uh, or the participation in the consensus mechanisms become more accessible, and uh, we reduce the barriers to entry. But it, it created an, an, another problem um, uh, on the other side. Well, the question. That, that I'm asking myself here is what happens to the miners in that equation? What, what, what would they do? What happens to the infrastructure uh, that they've built throughout the years? And where does this uh, activity go? You, you can bet that the GPU market will fall <laughs> because you, you will have very less demand. Like, uh, because as of now, Ethereum miners are use, using GPU. And uh, this created a lot of tension on the GPU market because the GPU market uh, is an electronic market and there is uh, some shortage issue as uh, every single actor in the electronic market. Um, before uh, Ethereum, before this uh, blockchain revolution, uh, GPU uh, were mostly for gaming, a little bit for machine learning. And then uh, there, was the, the, there was this high demand from uh, Ethereum uh, miners. So this also created like uh, some, some speculation about, uh, around NVIDIA stocks. You can have a look to NVIDIA stocks. It's quite interesting. Uh, but now all these miners who have bought plenty of GPU, uh, these GPU are not useful for them anymore. So they, they will sell them for low price. So if you want to buy a GPU, you can wait. Gamers a couple of days. will be happy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. maybe maybe now gamers will yeah. stop hating NFTs. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and it's and it's already priced in. I mean, if you if you look at the price of GPUs, I mean, over the over the, the previous the past previous months, I mean, it's already a significant dump. I mean, compared to what it was one year ago, so it's already. I mean, it's it's of course it's already priced in. And is there a chance we end up with another blockchain, like another Ethereum Classic? What would happen if some of these miners decide to keep running the the, the old chain? What what would be the impact? Uh, I think one of the one of the big difference, I mean, compared to Ethereum Classic, is that when we had that kind of fork, I mean, it was it was pretty easy to fork because we had absolutely no economy. I mean, on Ethereum Classic, I mean, the only economy was the token uh, itself and maybe the DAO contract. But now, if you want to fork Ethereum, I mean, you have to fork uh, a lot of a lot Stop of contracts, a lot of tokens, and in the end. Just by, I mean, just by forking uh, Ethereum, you are going to create a lot of a lot of bad debt. Uh, just at the moment you fork the network, you end up with tokens, which wrap tokens, which are not redeemable anymore. So I'm not just speaking about stable coins, but if you if you are looking, for example, with at wrapped bitcoins, uh, you end up with wrapped bitcoins which are wrapped by proprietary actors. I mean, for for most of them, I mean, for WBTC, for example, uh, that will be just worth nothing. So if you consider this into protocols, uh, and if, for example, you have some, some Oracle bug or whatever, that, that the price of the token is not correct, 
uh, I don't really see how this chain is going to be to be viable. I mean, just because of that, because uh, there are a lot of people who will be trying to exploit whatever vulnerability they can find, uh, who are going to to create even more bad debt on top of the existing bad debt. And usually, you know how it goes. I mean, when people try to do that, it, everything starts dumping to zero pretty fast. I mean, we have seen uh, we have seen the result of multiple exploit on on Luna uh, recently. I mean, and uh, I'm not. Uh, yeah, I'm not super positive. I mean, about uh, the future of an Ethereum fork. And yeah, as you as you said, if we want if we want proof of work in Ethereum, which we already have Ethereum Classic in the end, so miners can can just go there and at least they have, they have yeah. a network which is peaceful and with no no complexity at all. And and forking something like Ethereum today with, uh, is is just too complex in my opinion. Yeah, I totally agree. To me, this fork has no chance to survive, but it will be interesting to follow because there are some actors that could be incentivized to 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 make it survive a bit, like as you said, miners, but maybe also uh, centralized exchanges because in the end they could generate some fees if they uh, they list the fork. Actually, so it would be interesting. It it could be risky in terms of uh, reputation for them, but maybe some shady exchanges will be tempted to to list the fork and generate some fees from it. So. Yeah, we will see. And I agree also with Nicolas, the fact that this is completely different from uh, uh, the DAO uh, fork, etc. Uh, but I'm not happy because what protects us is mainly centralization forces, like the power of stablecoins and DeFi and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I'm not happy with that, that the fact they are protecting us uh, because uh, in the end, those are uh, centralization vectors and attack vectors. It's an interesting dilemma here because, you know, we've been criticizing the effects of decentralization of, you know, Ethereum 2.0, but when you, it seems like what you guys are saying is that decentralized actors are the ones that are preventing a potential fork because they would, you know, whatever whatever remains on that old chain would be invaluable, um, which is which is kind of funny. Uh, but you know, when we're talking about the future, what do you guys think is next for Ethereum? Obviously, the merge is an event amongst a much bigger roadmap. Could you maybe sp- speak a little bit more to what's next on that roadmap and um, what can people expect? I think like uh, I think Abdel will be the the expert for that. But I think the most important event will be when it will be possible to withdraw, because uh, in uh, in the meantime we are still in uh, in an unknown situation. Incentives are not very well aligned, as I was mentioning before, uh, when it comes to uh, to staking. So I think the the main uh, future events in this transition uh, will be the possibility to uh, to withdraw uh, your stake Ethereum. How long? How long is it locked for? Uh, because uh, maybe you can speak a little bit more to the uh, to this process itself, like how it started, how long it's locked, and then obviously the withdrawal uh, period. Yeah, basically it's uh, unknown, totally unknown, because it will depend on the future hard fork. Uh, so it, it needs to be implemented in the protocol, etc. There is no. Um, timeline defined in the protocol. It's a matter of implementing the code in the protocol to be enabled to withdraw. So this is totally unknown. It could be nine months, it could be two years. So speaking of the future, obviously we mentioned the withdrawal period um, of the ETH and obviously at the beginning of the conversation we were talking about sharding. Um, so first of all, what is sharding? When when uh, is it going to come into play and how is it going to affect um, the Ethereum network? Yeah, basically the sharding, the idea is is quite simple. It's what Charles said earlier. The idea is kind of if we think about Ethereum state as a database, the idea is to split the database in in multiple smaller databases. Actually, the term sharding comes from the database world, if I 
uh, uh, I think so. Uh, so the idea, why we do that? Because um, it's uh, easier to do stuff in parallel when you work only on a sub subset of the states, uh, because otherwise you are not sure uh, uh, the, the effects of, of transaction on which uh, part of the database they can have effects too. So if you split the database in multiple parts, you can do stuff in parallel. So you can uh, multiply the throughput of your chain. This is the main idea. So as Charles said, uh, it will increase um, the, um, the throughput, but not uh, uh, enough to, to gain some mass adoption. So we talked about uh, ZK rollups uh, mm -hmm. at the beginning. Uh, I would say that there are good uh, in combination, actually. The power of ZK rollups can be multiplied by the, the sharding effects. Um, so this is an important uh, thing to, to have more scalability. And there are also interesting stats uh, coming in the, in the roadmap, like the proposal of the separation, the idea of uh, uh, instead of having the same person uh, include the transaction in the block and creating the block, uh, we could split that in two roles that will increase security, etc. because it will be harder to, to, to attack a specific validator. It can be, bring also some protection to MEV, uh, Stuff like that. Uh, there will be also some changes that uh, will uh, be uh, that will make uh, Ethereum more wallet friendly. Actually, uh, with uh, uh, cheaper uh, data for for wallets to uh, to submit some proofs, etc. Uh, so, the, in terms of timeline, hard to say honestly. Uh, it's uh, as usual. Uh, it's very hard to project the timeline. So. Cannot say about that. I'd say Ethereum, Ethereum development is super interesting for that because we've seen that the, the, the Ethereum Foundation is trying to predict the future, I mean, for a long period of time. So we have seen this with sharding. Uh, in the end, when sharding was defined, uh, was designed, I mean, we didn't have the concept of DeFi. Uh, then we realized that all the applications started to be interconnected. Uh, when everything is interconnected, sharding starts to be a little bit different. You have to rethink uh, how sharding is going to work. And in the end, you had a lot of developments on wallups uh, done from, from external actors. So not done from the foundation uh, directly, but those actors will have, I mean, the development of those actors will have impact on the protocol itself. But I think the interesting, the interesting way the Ethereum protocol is moving is that you have some impulsion, which is uh, starting from the foundation, uh, but then other people can, can modify it, can, can, can give, I mean, good ideas. And in the end, if those ideas work and if those ideas can be tested, uh, then they are going to go back into the protocol. So you have a, a great collaboration in the way um, the blockchain is evolving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the... The overall idea of, of sharding is to divide and conquer. Uh, so you have smaller chain, uh, you try to be independent and you can parallelize the, the work. But you have several challenges. As uh, Nicolas was saying, uh, you have to maintain a consistent uh, state of the overall system. So uh, the, the shard have to uh, talk each other, to synchronize each other uh, regularly. This is, this is one thing. And second, you cannot have like 100,000 uh, different shards because if you do that, the difficulty to take over the consensus mechanism of one shard is 100,000 times easier than if you have only one blockchain. And this is the trade-off you have to find. Like, uh, what, what is the acceptable factor uh, for uh, sharding the chain while you, still, you will still have um, a secure enough uh, shard uh, while you improve your, your scalability? Mm -hmm. And 
if, if you read like uh, some blog post, uh, I think uh, Vitalik wrote uh, an interesting one about that. Like 64 seem, uh, seems to be like the highest number you can uh, you, you can have for 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 having the same level of security we have today. That's that's very interesting. I have so many different questions. So first of all, I'll, I'll recap what you guys have just said and stop me if I if I make any any silly mistakes. Uh, so sharding is basically like you said, dividing the, the the database into different subset. This happens on the layer one, so it happens directly on the blockchain. Whereas zk rollups, uh, it happens on another layer, and the whole idea is that you batch different transactions together, and instead of uh, you know, updating the blockchain one by one, you actually group some transactions together and you update it all at once, which makes it that it's uh, less uh, cost intensive and uh, also more like energy efficient because you do one 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 like transaction instead of doing hundreds. So this is a very very interesting discussion because we always had that discussion about layer one versus layer two and and the impact of the merge uh, on 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 that synergy. So what what like. What would be the synergy in the future between sharding or and zk rollups? It seems like it's not one or the other. How would the two work together? Exactly, they can work in combination. Um, actually, uh, the power of uh, zk rollups uh, would be multiplied by the power of sharding. Like you could imagine, uh, there are multiple designs possible, but uh, you could imagine simply to have a, a zk rollup or even multiple zk rollup on top of each shard. Um, actually, the Cross-shard communication will be uh, harder, but um, there are definitely ways of uh, combina- combining them. It's not one or the other, to be clear, uh, but it's not uh, yet defined how we can combine them together. But yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. I, I agree with what you say. Nonetheless, I think if you think about this, so we have a scalability issue to solve. And we have different uh, solutions which can be uh, used uh, in combination. But I think the risk we have like with uh, going to sharding does not worth the, the, the factor of scalability we would mm-hmm. obtain. If, yeah. Especially if you, if you compare, if we, do, we wouldn't have any other solution, yeah, okay, we, time 64 is already good. But we we yeah. def- we already have some solutions which are very more promising with less trade-off. So yeah. my but I yeah. think uh, the main reason was that uh, no one was expecting those uh, zk rollups to 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 uh, to emerge as fast as. Uh, honestly, I'm the first surprised that we are still uh, we are already there actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And with and with those rollups, I think uh, we are going to experiment with sharding at the application level as well. So when we are going to see, I mean, those what people call layer freeze or fractal scaling at the moment, so with uh, with recursive proofs, uh, we are going to be able to use sharding for for what exactly matters. I think like uh, zk rollups are, are extremely uh, computation intensive for for generating proofs. And in the end, applications that need uh, that need the most complex proof will be able to run in their own subsystems, and it's a way to it's a way to consider sharding, but not from the protocol point of view. In that case, for an application, so an application that wants that needs the power uh, could be able to have its own uh, its own validator set, I would say, uh, and then be linked uh, with a regular rollup. So we are we have a very interesting time ahead uh, for sure. But I, I agree with Charles that uh, to me it's. Uh... Honestly, it's, uh, I, I agree that it's important to keep the base the settlement layer as simple as possible. And this is why I would I dream about uh, a world where we could have Bitcoin as a settlement layer because its simplicity and rigidity would make it a, an ideal candidate, honestly, to, to be the settlement, uh, a, a great settlement layer. Yeah. 
we, we, we have briefly discussed about that during Surfing Bitcoin. And yeah, I'd like you to uh, explain uh, to our listeners how you see that. You mentioned the, this uh, stock up, uh, up code in Bitcoin. Uh, please explain us uh, how you would see that. And and maybe before before that, just explain what StarkNet is, because we've been st- yeah. talking about ZK rollups, but you haven't even introduced StarkNet. Yeah, and okay. That, that Bitcoin discussion is so interesting. Uh, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to the answer. Maybe it actually requires another episode, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay, I, I will try to, to, to be short. Uh, so we, we talked about rollups. So there are uh, optimistic rollups and ZK rollups. Anyway, optimistic rollups rely on economic incentives for their security, and they all have a trusted assumption of one honest actor in the system. ZK rollups, on the, on the other side, they rely only on math, and the idea is to be able to generate a proof of the computation to ensure the state transition is correct, and then you submit the proof to the layer one, etc. There are multiple uh, kind of ZK rollups. Uh, among them, the most mature at the moment uh, is uh, is uh, Starknet, uh, and it uses uh, Stark proof. There are many kind of zero knowledge proof systems. Yeah, there are Snark and Starks. They are different, but uh, Starks to me are very superior first because they don't require a trust setup. So to be uh, uh, more precise, they don't uh, they have less uh, security assumptions basically uh, because you don't need a, a ceremony that could uh, generate some cryptographic waste. Sorry, it's, it, it starts to become a bit technical, but uh, and <laughs> they are prone to resistance also as well. Uh, anyway, and then uh, the idea is that Starknet is a permissionless layer on top of Ethereum where you can put your arbitrary logic as smart contracts and you can generate the proof that will be submitted to the base layer. So why uh, I think Bitcoin will Maybe be... A... Just, just a quick comment for people to understand better. So you have a full world which, which lives independently from, from the blockchain and you have a prover which will prove that this world is consistent and is correct. This part is computationally uh, heavy, but it's off-chain. And you have a smart contract on Ethereum blockchain, which verifies the proof. And verifying a proof is easy, and it does not cost a lot of, of, of fees. I just wanted to... Uh, yeah, yeah. To add this, this is why uh, where the scalability comes from. And the idea is that um, it is exponentially uh, smaller to uh, verify the proof than running the computation. Said otherwise... It's more interesting uh, where uh, when you uh, at scale basically. This is very interesting, but because the more computation you have, the more uh, scalable it is, and the the less is the cost of a single transaction. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, the idea why uh, Bitcoin will be a good settlement layer because of its uh, simplicity, etc. The fact that it's censorship resistant, and those are very important properties for a settlement layer. So what it would imply to, to for that to be, to happen? First, we will need uh, an opcode in Bitcoin uh, to verify this proof. Like Charles said, we have a prover and a verifier. Actually, the verifier on Ethereum is a, uh, is a smart contract. And this is a, it, it, it did not require a change in the protocol because smart contracts are Turing complete. So it was feasible to implement the, the logic of the verification of the proof. But Bitcoin is not Turing complete on the protocol. So you need specific opcodes to do some specific logic. So that, first, we will need that. And we could stop there because for that to happen, it's huge in terms of. Uh, I think uh, I think we really need another episode for yeah, that subject because yeah, because honestly, so this is the first time I hear of this, and I think like the impact. I, I, 
honestly, like technologically, I wouldn't understand the impact, but like from a narrative standpoint and from a um, an impact on the overall community, like it exactly. basically destroys the, the the blockchain maximalism narrative, which means that Bitcoin can can basically support other yeah. blockchains and enable innovations on other blockchains and maintain the security of other blockchains through its proof of work uh, uh, consensus mechanism. But speaking of Starknet and, and um, Nicola, I know that you've been working a lot with your team on integrating Starknet um, into the Ledger ecosystem. So can you tell us what, what this means for you and how it will add value to the Ledger community? Yeah, because we have seen that the benefit of rollups is to enable faster and uh, faster and, and less expensive transactions on, on Ethereum. But if we want to push this a little bit further, uh, what's quite interesting, so once we have that, is that, for example, you can consider that your account uh, is not uh, just a key anymore. You can consider that the account you are interacting with is a smart contract. And when you have this, you realize that your hardware wallet can be so much more than a tool that you use to just confirm every transaction you can have a much easier way to interact with your blockchain. So you can have a lot of controls uh, which are implemented into the smart contract itself. So you could say, for example, uh, that you are not ready to spend uh, more than a given amount of token, I mean, for a given time. Or you could say, for example, that you are going to validate an interaction with a game uh, much, yeah, much in a much easier way than, than, well, than interacting with your hardware wallet. So you could say, for example, that you have permission to interact with a specific contract transparently, so with a minimal action required from the user. And all that would be powered by uh, on-chain security and by an on-chain security mechanism. So in the end, uh, your hardware wallet turns from a tool that is used to validate every transaction from a tool which is used to validate your security profile, uh, to specify your mm. security profile and your day-to-day -day interaction with the blockchain is much easier. So that, that's a big, that, that's, I, would, I think that's a very big change, I mean, for, uh, for hardware wallet owner. And typically for us, it will give us a way to, to try as well to onboard people without a hardware wallet, which is a, a very big change, I mean, for, for how we consider security, because those people will be uh, able to enter the ledger ecosystem without a device. And then they will, uh, they will be, uh, we will give them good incentives to get a device because the security will be, of course, much better with a device. And then once you have a device, you could have specific, um, specific, um, well, we could, you could have specific benefits as well. For example, mm -hmm. you could have some free NFTs. I mean, if you order a device or you could have better APYs uh, on some services. So it's a different way of considering how we onboard people into our ecosystem. So I think that's, I think that's pretty interesting. Just one question. If the private keys are not held on the device, where are they? And how do you sign signatures? So the signatures, you don't, you don't need to, you have to change the, the idea of private keys. Uh, in your smart contracts, you have, I mean, uh, authorization agents that will authorize you uh, to perform a signature. And that's where the private key gets into, gets into perspective. Because as, well, on the Ethereum blockchain, a smart contract doesn't need to own a key uh, to sign a transaction. So here, the key is used for the validation of the, the transaction on the smart contract. So it's not handled by the smart contract itself. I mean, not, not as, not, uh, I mean, not when the transaction is signed, 
but it's just used to authorize the transaction. So you could have you could have different mixes. Uh, for example, you could say, okay, I'm going to validate this transaction with my phone, and then use a powerful uh, security mechanism of your phone. I mean, for example, you could use uh, a FIDO implementation, which is already using the secure enclave on your phone, uh, to sign a transaction with limited economic any economical risks. Um, so your hardware wallet will be there to let you decide what mm. is uh, an economical risk or basically how much money you want to use, how, much as how many assets uh, you want to put in this contract with this validation method, which is strong, but not as strong as using a hardware wallet, uh, but much more convenient. So it's, mm. it, it will really change the way you interact with, uh, with your crypto day to day. I mean, if, uh, if, we, manage to, if we manage to interact, uh, if we manage to implement it properly, which is definitely what we are, what we are working on. And maybe one, one, just one more thing which makes uh, StarkNet very interesting, in my opinion, compared to other ZK rollups, is that it takes, an, it takes a, a completely abstracted approach to what is implemented on the, on the wallet. So it doesn't, um, the goal isn't to mimic the Ethereum virtual machine. Um, it's really to, to create a generic computation engine. So it means that we can go much, uh, we can go beyond uh, limits that we have on the, on the solidity on the EVM, uh, which, is meant to inter which is meant to design, well, financial contracts, I would say, but not, for example, to run complex games. Uh, and we can have games with, uh, with generative landscapes. We can have games with, uh, with very expensive physics engine. Uh, we can have neural networks, I mean, on StarkNet, because computation is, is not uh, intensive. And even if we wanted to have this on a, on a ZK rollup, which is um, just mimicking the EVM, it would, be, it would be too expensive. So that's also um, a lot of new applications, I mean, that people will be able to enjoy um, with maximum security uh, using Ledger. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. And I, I just wanted to, to highlight something with like scalability and low fees are very important and it allows new use cases, as uh, Nicolas was mentioning. But even for use cases that we have on layer one, Today, these use cases have been implemented with, uh, with, with this uh, uh, high fees and low scalability constraints, and these constraints have uh, driven bad security choice, for instance. If you have a look to the NFT ecosystem, there are plenty of uh, trade-offs and bad security choice, mostly because you have to have low fees. When you do uh, like off-chain uh, off signature to uh, do auction on uh, OpenSea, this is, this is a bad security choice. But you have no choice uh, because if you do otherwise, like doing an auction on OpenSea would cost a lot. So even for fixing the current use case that we have on layer one, this layer, layer two are, are good. But then we can open uh, our mind and having plenty of new ideas as, uh, as Nicolas was mentioning before. That's pretty exciting. I feel like I'm already in, in the future now. Well, gentlemen, I could keep talking to you for hours, but uh, Cyril here would probably shoot me in the head uh, because we're <laughs> over time. Uh, so it was, it was a huge pleasure. Uh, honestly, I learned a lot uh, throughout this episode and I'm very much looking forward to our future episode. I really want to get into that Bitcoin uh, slash, slash Ethereum topic. So let, let's schedule another episode to talk about that sure. and I'll, I'll speak to you soon. Thank you very much. Sure, pleasure. Thank you <laughs> both for having us. That was great. Thank you. 
That's it. Such an insightful conversation. I honestly learned a lot and I hope you did the same. Something we truly needed before, you know, one of the biggest events in crypto history yet. If you want to learn more about the merge and how it'll affect you, be sure to check out Ledger's Twitter account and Academy. The team's been working on some serious documentation to help you navigate the merge. This was On The Ledger from Paris with your host Mol Sayed. Till next time, take care. Au revoir. This content is provided for informational purposes only and is the sole expression of our opinion and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment or tax advice. Do your own research. Any loss or profit is your sole responsibility. Stay safe.